Well, I think we're close to takeoff, so buckle your seat belts. If there's a loss of cabin pressure, there'll be... No, this <laughs> wrong place, wrong place. Okay, so we welcome you to uh, uh, our workshop. Um, if you're not here to participate in managing HIV in rural environments, you're in the wrong room. So now's a good time to leave, but we hope you'll stay. I'm Jim Raper, and uh, uh, this is my co-presenter today, uh, Michelle Ogle, and uh, we're glad to have you folks with us. So we thought before we got started uh, with the workshop, maybe just kind of to know our audience a little bit, if you guys, uh, maybe by the show of hands, um, how many of you have been doing this work for at least five years? Okay, at least 10 years? All right, at least 20 years. Les, keep your hand up. <laughs> yeah. okay. He's been doing this so for 75 years. Okay, <laughs> so, and you look good. <laughs> now that's a blind guy with a stick, but I'm telling you. <laughs> so, um, uh, so it looks like you know most of us have been at this for a while. And so um, hopefully we will take this opportunity today to learn from one another and not so much just from what Michelle and I have to share with you from our experience, but, but we really want to make this interactive. And we have a, we have a, a microphone that we will share around uh, from time to time. It's a relatively small room. The reason we're asking you to use the mic is because this is being recorded. And so that's, uh, we would hope that you'd uh, uh, work with us in terms of using the mic and not just speaking loudly because I know we can probably all he hear you folks. Um, so, uh, let's see here. <sighs> Michelle, are you ready to pass that yeah. along here? I'm so this is who we are, Michelle and Jim. And uh, so here's here are Michelle's um, multiple financial relationship. <laughs> Conflict of interest. <laughs> so she wanted me to make sure that everybody knows that she does not work for the drug company. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So and um, here are our learning objectives. So uh, you can take a look at those real quickly if you like. And then I think we'll go ahead and... This thing is stuck. I think we'll go ahead and... Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe we would first tell you a little bit about what we do before we ask you folks what you do. And so I work in uh, in Alabama, and I work at the University of Alabama uh, 1917 clinic. And it's a, it's a big clinic. I've been there 21 years. We currently have around uh, oh 30, I think 3,500 patients that we provide care to. And 15% of those patients live in rural counties in Alabama. So they come to see us from all over the state. Many of them do what I suspect many of your patients do, and that is come long distances because they don't want to see, the pr they may sometimes pass two or three providers to get to the university because they don't want to be seen in their neighborhoods. They don't want to be, they don't want to go to their local pharmacies. They don't want to, you know, so a lot of that is the reason why people come to us. And I think a lot of it is also because they think that they get a different level of care at the university than they would get in uh, a, uh, a, uh, a, a clinic very close to them. And they just don't understand that, that 
the care that are, is given sometimes in the neighborhoods and their own communities is just as good as the care that they're going to get at the university. So um, that's kind of what what uh, our pop my population of patients looks like. I take care of about 750 of these 3,600 patients. So um, I love what I do, and I hope you guys love what you do. Michelle? So I'm sorry this is a little fuzzy. It looked clear to me when I was doing this slide at 1 o'clock in the morning with some <laughs> wine next to me. <laughs> um, so um, I'm the clinical director of Warren Vance Community Health Center, and within our center we have a dedicated um, clinic that provides care for people living with HIV. Um, this is the lovely state of North Carolina. Um, you, you can't, I, I can't see it from here, but maybe you can see it from there. North Carolina has 100 counties. 80% of North Carolina is rural. So rural health care in our state is very important. Our clinic provides care to um, five surrounding counties. We're the only uh, comprehensive HIV care clinic in within a 45, 50 mile radius. So we have um, several people that come from those counties. Plus, we also, people come from Wake County for the same reason as Jim was saying, they may run into someone that they know in Wake County, so they come to our little clinic out of the way where they don't think they'll run into anyone. This is, um, this slide just depicts the demographics of our clinic, and I wanted you to just see, along with the counties that we provide services for, the um, demographic makeup of our clinic. So uh, as you see, we pretty much represent the communities um, that we serve. Um, most important to note, and I'll say this to update, um, we're starting to get uh, more young um, men who have sex with men who do live in these um, counties but may, be, may not be accurately counted in the data because they have not divulged their status um, in terms of their being MSMs. Challenges in managing um, HIV infection in rural environments. Rural patients face substantially greater barriers to care than their urban counterparts. More than 49,000 HIV-infected adults and adolescents live in rural areas. And lack of HIV-trained medical professionals and poor health care infrastructure makes it very difficult for patients in rural environments to get comprehensive HIV care. With that said, um, what Dr. Raper and I wanted to do was actually have dialogue with you about some of the challenges that you face, maybe share some of your experiences and ways that you've dealt with those challenges and ways that you try to overcome those barriers with providing care for your patients. Or if you have questions about rural health care, we wanted to sort of make this interaction interactive so we're not sitting here um, lecturing to you. I just, I just don't want to do that. I want to have interaction. So does, is it, are there other rural health care providers here? Okay. So you know what we might do is, um, if you could, and uh, I, I've, I've already forgotten your name. Joan. 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 So, mm -hmm. so Joan's going to the, bring the mic. And if we could kind of do this in a controlled way, um, if you could kind of stand up and just say who you are, uh, what role you play at, at your facility, and then uh, what, if you could identify one of your biggest challenges or barriers in providing the HIV care that, that you have. Sorry. Is that me or is that no, you? I think that was me. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> now that was you. No, it's not me. Oh, the bite. It might be you, you, Joan. Oh. Oh, you know what? Maybe. Maybe. Some of 
So this young lady here, uh, is right there on tape. Yeah. Oh. No, oh. I was pointing at me. That's okay. Me. Okay. <laughs> um, my name is Elena Steeple, and I am from Tallahassee, Florida. I work in a FQHC, um, Ryan White funded. I am a nurse practitioner, and I am the primary um, HIV provider. Um, I think that's probably my biggest challenge is that <laughs> I have a lot of patients and um, the other providers, hey, they'll see the patients when, when I'm not there, but uh-uh, when you're here. Okay, so that's probably my biggest challenge. So you don't have a backup, really? I do have a backup if I, if I get my mean face on. Okay. So that's pretty much So that goes it. to um, the point about lack of HIV-trained medical professionals and the infrastructure actually in the more rural places or in places where there aren't um, HIV-trained providers. And it's, not, and it's not that we lack the training. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that they're not interested in keeping up with the HIV, that's just not their area of interest. And I don't know if anyone else experiences that, but that's just not their their area of interest. Good, thank you for sharing yes, that. Sir. Thank you for you. You had your hand up. Yes, right there. I'm Sonia Preston. Um, I'm a nurse practitioner and clinical director at um, a Ryan Watt funded clinic in Anniston, Alabama. Uh, we cover 14 counties, which is combined is about like 9,000 square feet, um, miles, sorry. Um, so we, <laughs> not feet. It probably we feels like that sometimes. It does. So sure. we, we actually travel, we have four additional satellite clinics. So we get in a vehicle and we drive two hours to our satellite clinics. I think our biggest uh, barrier to care is the stigma attached to HIV mm -hmm. in the South um, and patients not wanting to come into care. We actually do a lot of home visits because of that. I'll get in the vehicle and go to the patient's home just because they do not want to come in. Mm -hmm. And finally, we'll get them a link and they'll start adjusting a little bit. Um, but that's our biggest barrier is a stigma attached to it, even if it, it may be just personal for that person and not as self-perceived. Um, and I think probably we all share that. And Jim and I were, well, we always talk about it. We had a long conversation today about just just uh, think about what you're saying. Now, Jim is in uh, UAB. He's in a big university medical center as, you know, a clinic that's actually embedded within the medical center. And patients feel the same stigma going to his center as they do coming to our clinic, which is it's in a in a medical arts building, there are other clinics in there, but it's the same issue whether you're going to a, a university health center or whether you're coming to a community-based clinic, um, the stigma is, is, is it, it actually prevents people from um, wanting to be in care. And if you add on to that, if they're uh, a man who has sex with men, um, you're poor, um, Unless, you know, the other elephant in the room when we're talking about stigma is health disparities. And even when you, excuse me, just jump a little bit. Yeah, I was just, sorry. Even when you 
even when you control for socioeconomic status, African Americans suffer uh, more stigma because of actually the the racism that exists within the healthcare structure, and also prevents um, them from wanting to seek care. So I think stigma is a huge issue. One of the things we talked about is um, around stigma is disclosure and how to help patients with that, how to try to relieve that internal stigma versus um, also dealing with external stigma, the stigma that you that's unintended in the healthcare structure, stigma again by the community and so on. So I, that's, it's a huge issue. Um, while we're, since we're on that, I, I mean, I don't know if, if, are you doing anything to, to try to uh, address that? Or how do you deal with it? In the South, particularly, um, in the school systems, we, you know, we're in the Bible Belt. You don't have oh, yeah. sex. I you don't you. do those mm -hmm. things. But the kids are doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think they're educated. A lot of people in, that are my age think, well, we eradicated HIV. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And the South, we don't have that education. Our public school systems are not great. Um, we're, they're poor, mm -hmm. and it's sad. Adding, adding on to your about education, we just had a community health fair. Where are you located? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm an HIV program manager in Immokalee, Florida. So very rural area, Our, my primary clientele is um, Hispanics, documented, undocumented, and also Creole, Haitian population, which is also documented, undocumented. Um, but we just had a community health fair, and the music DJ that was there went around to all the booths. He came to ours. We have condoms, STDs, HIV pamphlets. Mm -hmm. And he looks over, and he's like, what's those? I said, well, we're teaching, you know. STD prevention, HIV prevention, these are condoms. And he looks at me shocked and, and he says intimacy in Spanish. He says, I really can't, I don't like saying that word. And I'm looking at him and he's probably, you know, in his 50s, early 60s. And I'm like, that's the problem in society. You as an adult can't even say the word sex and you expect our kids to be like, oh, well, what is that? They're doing, I mean, kids at nine years old are having sex. And we, as adults, can't even say the word sex. Yeah, agree. This, this one here. This gentleman. He, yeah, him. That's what I'm pointing to. Hi, I'm Peter Havens from uh, Wisconsin. And I'm interested, so your model is uh, the patients have to pay to come to your clinic. And they might have to come a long distance. And your model is you guys pay to go out to where they are. And so for us, transportation is a huge issue uh, in a rural area, getting either providers to where the patients are or patients to where the provider are. And I'm just interested to hear how you, you pay for that because that becomes a big part of our budget trying to either get the nurses to an outreach. We do a lot of outreach like you're talking about in home visits, but in rural areas they spend a lot of time. Uh, and a lot of money in travel. So, uh, so and uh, I don't know if the state pays for your patients to get to your clinic or how you Part work C. that out. Oh, no, you so want to go first? Yeah, now, let me just, we deal with let me just well. say that um, I don't even know, I didn't even know you before today. 50 miles away, it's good. It's, it's, nice, to, it's nice to see you. So um, 
when I first started doing this 21 years ago, we didn't have Ryan White. And so when we got Ryan White, that felt good. And we had some funds, and then the state got some Ryan White, and then we got some funds. And then lo and behold, we found out about 340B, and life changed. Our clinic changed. And now if somebody needs transportation, we pull out the checkbook and we give them, we give them a, a gas voucher. And we tell them that we'll give them a gas voucher. And every time you come to clinic, you'll get a gas voucher. Um, if you live in, the, in Birmingham, we don't have very good uh, public transportation, but we do have buses. Uh, some patients uh, are happy to, to use the bus. They're intelligent. They can figure out how the buses run. Other patients will not get on a bus. And part of that is stigma. Part of that is racial stigma. Um, but if they'll use the bus, we'll, we buy bus tokens, and they get their bus tokens. So we don't have – our biggest problem is, um, for particularly for patients coming from rural areas, if they haven't told somebody in their family where they're going to, they'll say they got to go to the doctor at UAB. Well, first of all, it's like, why are you going to UAB? You know, something bad wrong with you? And then if they can get somebody to bring them there, they'll drop them off three blocks away from the building um, because they don't want them to know that they're infected with HIV. So they don't want to take them to the clinic that everybody knows that's the HIV clinic at UAB. And so um, we've got the money. Um, 340B has made that very you know, I can use the anything that's patient-related. I can use the money. And if your clinic, if you if you're from a clinic, and you and you don't have 340B money, um, you you need to get well. you need to get your 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 uh, administrator uh, up up to speed because that money should be there, and 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 so that shouldn't be a, well, a barrier. So we have a different approach, and so in our rural community, we don't have any um, public transportation. So we, and this is one of the reasons we value Ryan White, we value Ryan White funding. Through our Ryan White Part C, we use the money uh, allocated from medical transportation. We contract with the local um, little transportation company, they're called CARTS. We've worked with them for probably the, the, almost the entire time the clinic's been there. We contract with them and we, um, they bill us when they pick up uh, one of our patients and bring them to our clinic or if they need to be seen by a specialist or if they need to go to UNC or if they need to go to Duke, um, we contract with them and we pay them out of our Ryan White Medical Transportation Funds to do that. We also have one other clinic in one of the other counties It's in Warrington. It's not a designated clinic. Um, the family practice provider uh, within Warren Vance Community Health Center lets us use his clinic one Monday a month and we drive to Warrington, which is maybe about a half an hour away, and we drive there to see patients who can't get to, to our clinic, you know, one county over. Um, and we can reimburse for that, be reimbursed for that also out of the medical transportation money from our clinic there and back. Um, I, I, don't get the re I don't take the reimbursement so that I can use that money for clients and their travel back and forth. If there are people that bring people to the clinic, we give them a gas card. Again, that's paid for with Ryan White Part C, 
medical transportation money, and we give them a gas card. We actually tell them that some of our patients come a long way, and we tell them if you get a ride, we can fill up your tank, and that we can get them back. And I have my wonderful staff over there um, who knows we have people that have come to the clinic, and we give them gas cards just because we know they're coming from a long distance, and they've said to, you know, Sharon or Rita, I didn't know how I was going to get home because I'm almost on E, and we're a long way away. So the Ryan White funds are very important, and we use that for our medical transportation. we're at. Mm -hmm. So with our Ryan White Part C and Part D, we do the medical transport for the patients. So we all get in the vehicles, the same clinic staff that you see in, mm -hmm. in each clinic site. And we go and that driver drives us down there, we get out and then the driver goes by and picks up all those patients, brings them into the satellite clinic. Then they drive us back. So we use all that. We also use uh, vouchers or gas cards and those kind of things mm -hmm. if they can get there. Okay. Thank you. The one thing with a van like that, when you pick them all up, is some patients probably don't want to get on that van. But they know everyone on that van is. Yeah. So so you we, get we've to. We've had some of that. Yeah. You, you get to that. Uh, some of the pe patients, we have the same issue. They don't want to ride carts um, that we contract with because they're afraid they may see someone else on there and they may um, be seen coming to our clinic. So they too, same thing that Jim said, they will have carts drop them off across the street at the hospital and they'll walk over to the clinic so that they're not seeing getting off there because using carts is quite common since we again don't have public transportation as well so a lot of people use carts for many different reasons and we do have people that will get off at another location and walk to the clinic and ask to be picked up from another location as well. I'm just curious, you know, the thing that just, you know, has basically, that, we, that we're all very common, uh, you know, common for all of us is this stigma issue, right? I mean, that's the big, the big, the big thing. How many of you in your clinics teach people how to manage um, disclosure? Like when they see somebody in clinic, you know, because I've had many patients say, I don't want to come to, you know, like I'll say, like this lady was today, um, she said, uh, you know, your patients have been out of care for a year and they come back and, and you're asking them, you know, well, you know, why are you not coming to you know, your, your visits? And a lot of times patients will say, the last time I came, somebody from my church was here, you know. Uh, or the last time I came, I saw the lady that lives down the street here, you know, and I know they're going to go back and they're going to tell my business, you know. So I'm just curious, how many of, of your clinics teach people what to do or how to deal with the situation when they, when they meet somebody in the clinic that they know that they haven't disclosed to? You know, I, you know, one of the things that, that it became very apparent to me was we need to do some skills building. People need to know how to disclose to different types of individuals. I encourage my patients, anytime they see somebody in the clinic, to walk right up to them and say, I'm so glad you're here. You know, not to run out the back door, 
You know, you run out the back door, the problem's not going to go away. But you have to teach people how to deal with that because they're going to deal with that if they're going to continue coming to our clinics, right? Um, sometimes, some people, it's a comfort to come to clinic because they see other people that they know and, you know, they've been following and, you look good, you know, you put on some weight, you know. Uh, and then other people are scared to death every time they come in that door. You know, who's going to be here? And, and so I'm just curious, how many of you teach skills about disclosure or about being comfortable when, when they meet somebody in the clinic that, that they know from the community or from church or from bowling or whatever? Do any of you do that? Some of you do? So it's, it's something to think about. Yeah, the gentleman back there in the Hi, I'm Greg from the University of Virginia. I'm a nurse practitioner and also the quality coordinator. On the transportation issue for the patients not wanting the Medicab or whatever to come pick them up that people might know, our community health workers have an agreement with one of the local rental car agencies and it changes on a weekly basis so it's never the same car. Oh, that's nice. So so and what it's, is and it's Ryan White funded. I mean, we so use funds from... Um, what about the liability? Is there any liability or issues with renting cars and if there's an accident or anything like that? There was an issue with getting all that worked out, but through the university, um, they were able to work it out. That's, that's creative. Yeah. That's very creative. And we also, um, with our transportation funds, we'll buy um, train passes for them to just go to the train station and pick it up at will call. So that sounds good that other people are using the Ryan White funds, which, again, the value of Ryan White can't be overemphasized, especially in resource-poor communities like all of ours, um, because there's absolutely no other way we could get people to their appointments were it not for that medical transportation. This young lady here has had, no, here, right there, right there, right to your left. Yeah. Um, my or name my is Makeda. I'm the nurse practitioner, nurse midwife, and in many ways the only provider at the Department of Health in St. Croix. Um, for many of you, you know that these places are called territories, but they're really underserved colonies that get dumped on by the United States government and get nothing in return, not even the Affordable Care Act or anything. We only have Ryan White um, Part B, ADAP, which kind of helps us. And so there's, um, there's Medicaid, but the threshold is so low, you can't make more than $6,000, so you're not really eligible I have had patients that make 9,500, and, and not even there you can live on 9,500. And while there is stigma there, everybody knows everybody's business. This is, you said you serve 49,000. That's probably more people than we have on the entire island. And uh, so, you know, you, and this is true for Samoa. This is true for Guam because we talk to each other, and you know, we have U.S. passports but no rights of citizenry. Mm. And so we c we're, you know, you have a lot of black and brown people that have no rights. Mm -hmm. And so compounded by overstress and poverty. And we have the St. Croix particularly has the second highest incidence of STDs in the entire United States. Mm -hmm. So we are a hot spot. And so I do case management. I take my car and I go pick up people. I do everything because we also don't have those kinds of liability issues. It's, you know, everybody knows everybody. So even though nobody wants anybody in their business, everybody is in everybody's business. <laughs> <laughs> even the people that don't know that somebody's in their business, they're so in their business. So it's the culture. Yeah. Um, 
s but um, we have real issues of, 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 of poverty and I think, and the social determinants of health, which really compounds the situation. So one of the things I, I, I am stressing is uh, they're supposed to be celebrating the centennial from the trend. They've had seven different European owners, including the United States. So now we're about to celebrate the, the centennial of the transfer in 1917 of the island from Denmark to the United States. And I'm, I'm stressing um, that I'm part of the people that are pushing towards joining the other islands and Leeward Islands. I think that we will have a much better opportunity to own our own power and at least make our own mistakes. But we have, you know, real issues. And just from, I'm, I know I'm going to try to get 340B. I'm going to try to get part C of Ryan White and these Very other good. things. But, you know, seeing patients, being the only midwife, yeah. the only nurse practitioner, yeah. being the case manager, being the only triage, because nobody was doing triage, so my personal cell phone is the triage. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... Um, so we have a new federal commissioner now, and um, because the situation was so bad... Uh, they appointed, the CDC appointed a new federal commissioner. So I begged her to get um, more nurse practitioners and just to get more nurses um, and just to get some more just yeah. so ground let me So let me make you, you know, bless you for what you're doing because it's truly, <laughs> truly <laughs> ministry. Right. Bless you for what you're doing. But let me make you feel part of us and why we're all sisters and brothers in this. So in the United States, there are roughly 22 states um, where the governors and the people that control the states did not fully implement the Affordable Care Act. I know. These states also did not expand Medicaid. So we suffer from the same issues, um, especially in the southern states. In North Carolina, you have to be live. You have to have uh, eleven thousand dollars a year or less of income to be eligible for Medicaid, as long as you don't have a disability or something else. Um, and so, as you said, nobody can live like that. So, if you're eleven thousand and one dollar over, then yeah. you're not eligible. So we all we we have that same um, issue without full implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And to compound that, in the state of North Carolina, even though there are 100 counties, the three insurance companies that um, uh, um, provided premiums through the marketplace plan, they don't offer the same plans in every county. And now we have two of those insurance companies that are pulling out of the marketplace altogether in North Carolina. And I expect that's happening in other southern states as well. Um, and that's going to leave us all in a huge, huge mess. So we are, we are all sisters and brothers in this, particularly in rural areas, which is why we're having this conversation, because the rurality of HIV is, is what we're seeing now. Um, HIV incidence is increased in the Deep South, and it's for the reasons that you're saying. We don't have the resources. So we, too, even though we're within the United States, and I don't mean this to sound bad, but we often say we, you know, in the Deep South where we feel like we're third world, 
because we don't have many of the resources that other states have and other parts of, of the country have. So we too um, suffer from that. So, so I want to just, just t before we go to, I want to just speak for just for one second because I had a lot of nurse practitioners here, which makes me fairly good. <laughs> and I know Les is going to really be mad at me. Um, but Les Harmon, I just want to give him a little shout out, is actually, I'll say, one of the founders of our clinic, our, our Ryan White Clinic, and actually has been the anchor and foundation for that clinic. And I just want him, and he is a nurse practitioner extraordinaire, and I just want just to speak a little bit to the workforce issue and what you're doing, because it's really beneficial, and I think it's really nice for people to know what you're doing to try to improve the workforce issue. Thank you, Les. Yeah. Love just you. to add to that, I didn't know whether to come here or not, but because we don't have any urban. We just, you know, it's 13 miles from one end of the island to the next, mm -hmm. and those 13 miles are very big. You know, I there are people that live in east that have never been west, and people mm -hmm. that live in west, yeah, it's 13 miles. You know, driving five miles, that's going very far. Yeah. You know, so um, it's, it's. Yeah. So it's if I can. It's yeah. a, that's a, and it's America's paradise, by the way. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, Les, he's right there. Mm -hmm. I do, yes. <laughs> he's he's an ex excellent nurse practitioner and, and, and is actually working in the School of Nursing at Duke to, to train our workforce, so I just want you to speak to well, that. Well, yeah, we're, we're Duke University is one of five schools uh, that HRSA has funded uh, with five-year grants to establish training programs for nurse practitioners and physician assistants to help with the HIV epidemic in the U.S. So we have a, a program now. We're in the fourth year of a five-year grant. Um, so we have a, um, a master's program where students can specialize in HIV. They do close to 400 hours of uh, clinical work in HIV uh, before graduating. Um, Dr. Shimakawa in one of our rural North Carolina clinics has been a, one of our preceptors. Um, anyway, bottom line, we're, we're trying to expand the workforce by um, helping nurse practitioners and PAs who want to do this work get the education they need so that when they graduate, they can hit the ground running. Um, I think any of us who've worked in HIV for a long time understand the value of MPs and PAs in this work. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I don't know if any of you saw the HIV Medicine Association or actually American Academy of HIV Medicine um, issue on uh, workforce, the workforce, yeah. but the workforce in HIV is shrinking as those of us who've been doing this for many years are getting older and retiring or slowing down. Yeah, you've been doing it for 75 there's years. Yeah, shut up and shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's not enough, there are not enough people stepping in to do that work. Um, and in infectious disease physicians, we don't have enough. Uh, there, we can't even fill infectious disease residency the residencies, programs. fellowships. Fellowships around fellowships. the U.S. now. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a great need for that. Um, so Duke is part of this uh, group of schools. John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, uh, UC San Francisco, um, Rutgers University, and then SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn. the PA program. Um, the Columbia University in New York also has a program uh, to train uh, nurse practitioners in HIV. Um, but I think there's a, a lot that we can do to stem the tide of this. I think uh, getting back to the questions that you were posing, I think poverty mm -hmm. 
plays a big uh, is a big barrier to rural um, health care. I think the lack of good mental health and substance abuse treatment is tremendous because if you are dealing with with either of those issues, um, and many of our patients are dealing with poverty, mental health problems, and substance abuse. Um, and it, it really impacts what we can and can't do. So, so you know, what we've heard so far is, you know, we've heard stigma, we've heard resource-limited uh, settings, we've heard, um, you know, not enough providers, we've heard um, uh, transportation, you know, we've heard lack of insurance. Um, so, so we're 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 all kind of. You know, I, I look around, I see people shaking their heads. These, these are the kind of things that we're all dealing with. So, and we've heard a couple of things that institutionally have been done to help deal with this. But w what other kind of challenges have you identified? And what other kind of ways have you thought about or have been successful in terms of meeting these challenges? So I put our, to stimulate this looking at the time so um, this slide um, basically is something up that's modified from an assessment that we're using for risk um, and people being retained in the care and the social determinants that we're talking about are listed here and we wanted to see if if, if everyone was having the same sort of issues that we are having as well and we categorize them into high risk, moderate risk, and low risk as to whether or not uh, a person had transportation, didn't have transportation, inconsistent, or whatever, in terms of people being retained in the care. And so we talked about many of those, um, uh, and including, I'm glad you mentioned the insurance or lack of insurance because we, we deal with it here on a, on a large scale as well. So our social determinants there, anybody can speak to these as well or how you're addressing any of these. Um, I think the mental health and substance abuse issue is huge. And for those of us in rural communities, we don't have, we're fortunate we're gonna, we're really happy to get someone that's gonna be coming to our clinic, but we don't have what, what I would consider a really good, someone that's well-versed and dealing with people that are living with HIV to, to deal with mental health and substance abuse issues. And in our population, which I'm sure is the same in yours, um, I would say 100% of our people have some mental health issues that may not be addressed, but for sure documented 75% of our clientele um, have mental health and or substance abuse issues. And dealing with those are huge when we're talking about retention and care. And people being able to take their medications. Um, anyone else speak to that? And Jim's got a great, he's got mental health in his clinic. But so um, my name is Catherine Schaefer. I'm, at, I'm an MD at, at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, <laughs> North Carolina. Um, and I, yes, we, we certainly experience all of these things on, um, and see them manifested in our patients. And I think one of the successes and opportunities is in creating a, a, a group and a discussion of other involving other providers in rural settings to learn uh, alternative methods. And that, um, because 
you know, what works in San Francisco isn't necessarily going to work in That's Stokes right. County, North Carolina. That's right. Um, and I know I'm, pr I'm preaching to the choir because I know everybody in here thinks the same way. That's why we're all here. <laughs> but <laughs> I, um, and with that in mind, I would like to learn more about what, Jim, what you had mentioned about skills building around disclosure mm -hmm. because that sounds like Key. a very meaningful yeah. opportunity for um, intervention for our patients. Yeah. Jim, you want to speak to, remember you were talking to me about role playing? Yeah, so more. That was really interesting. Yeah, so one of the, th one of the things that we've adapted uh, is um, you know, in that 30 minute interval is um, role playing. You know, like if a patient, for instance, a, a person tells me that, you know, like um, I, I haven't told, yeah, I'll say, who do you talk to when you're, when you're feeling overwhelmed, you know, when you're feeling like, you know, you're alone, you know, who, who is it that you talk to? Who do you, you know, and they'll say, well, well, nobody. Well, who do you live with? And they'll, they'll tell me they live with somebody and do they know? No, I, I, I can't tell them. Well, what would it be like if you told them? I'll be the person you live with. You be you. I want you to tell me that you that you have HIV, that you're living with this, and that you need their help. You know, and so sometimes we'll we'll do that. Sometimes a patient will tell me that they're having sex, and they've had sex with the same individual for some period of time, but they've never disclosed their status, and now they're afraid to disclose their status because they're afraid that there's going to be repercussions, <laughs> and so. We do some role playing. Well, pretend like you have to tell him today that you have HIV. How are you going to do that? And so sometimes, and, and, and this goes, you know, sometimes it's just a few minutes out of that 30 minute time period that I have that we'll just do that, that role play. You know, how are you going to tell your mom? Pretend like you absolutely have to tell your best friend today. How are you going to do that? And so doing that, uh, I have found that doing that exchange, and then, uh, then I'll sometimes I'll say, this is how I did it. You know, um, I, this is the way I did it. I said, I, I told my friend that there was something really, really important that we needed to talk about, and we're going to talk about it Thursday evening. I'm not going to tell you what we're going to talk about, but Thursday evening we're going to have this conversation. And so they had four or five days to just think about what is this that's so important that he wants to talk to me about. And I said, so on Thursday we had dinner, and then after dinner I said we went into the living room, and I, I said, I've been wanting to tell you this for six months. And today's the day I'm going to tell you. But I have to get you to promise me that you'll keep my confidence and that, you know, you're not going to be angry with me. So, you know, kind of having that that back and forth, and it really helps. I'm, I'm sure some of you have um, people in your clinic, hopefully, who are living with HIV too, and they can have that conversation because it's very different coming from a person who has HIV to someone who has HIV as opposed to someone who doesn't have HIV. You know, 
because it's all hypothetical if you don't have HIV. You know, when, you, when you're living with it, then you can say, I'm living with it too, you know. And I can only tell you what my experience was. I can't tell you what your experience is going to be. But this worked out for me. So I have found that role playing is very, very helpful. And it builds trust between me and my, and my patients. And it builds trust between the people who I work with. Because I sometimes, you know, will will say, well, we have a patient navigator here. I want you to talk with a patient navigator. Or I'll refer them to one of the community-based agencies. How many of you all have community-based agencies in your, in your area? Yeah, and I've really found them to be very, very helpful. When I first started um, running the HIV clinic at, at UAB, I didn't always want the community-based organizations in the clinic. And now we have really changed that dynamic and we're all kind of in it together and we're in it as a community working together. And we know what is really great. BAO provides these services and AIDS Alabama deals with these services. One of the things up here was housing. I don't know how many of you guys have housing problems, but boy, my patients are constantly talking about housing. And, you know, I don't have any place to go and I'm living from room to room to, you know, this friend's house and that friend's house. and. And it really becomes an, an issue. And I'll, and I'll say, well, how do you keep track of your medicines? You know, where are your medicines? <laughs> you know, they so. Um, but getting back to the skills building, I've just found that if you don't have a skills building um, program, I encourage you to think about developing one. Um, it, it can really be very beneficial because overcoming that internal stigma, that fear of somebody finding out your status, can be paralyzing. And then what I've been told is they feel liberated afterwards. Mm -hmm. Once mm -hmm. they've told it mm -hmm. and the world didn't, it was like Y2K. The planes didn't fall out of the sky, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it, it, you know, so, and I'll say, well, how did that feel? You know, once you said, did they, did they run out of the room? No, they hugged me. You know, they said, thank you for telling me. You know, so, and it doesn't work like that for 100% of the people. You know, I know that. But for the majority of people, if they choose the right person to share with, it becomes a liberating experience. And then at least they have somebody to talk with. And they'll have somebody to say, I need a ride to Birmingham. Or could you help me get to the pharmacy? You know, it becomes a positive experience. So, Julia? Uh, Julia's there in the blue. Hi, I'm from uh, Duke. I'm Julia. I'm the Ryan White Part D coordinator. And I wanted to bring up a challenge that I don't really see on that list that mm -hmm. I think that in the South that we deal with quite a bit. And that is our undocumented Latinos as well as our African immigrants oh, yeah. um, who are coming into a healthcare system that they're very scared of coming into the institutions because they're afraid that that's somehow um, linked together with the immigration system, Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, I, I think that for, uh, for groups that have been here longer, that that kind of gets eased and they go into the, uh, they go into the health departments and they feel comfortable in the health departments. But for people who have been here for shorter periods of time, that that's a much bigger issue. Um, and I just wanted to kind of see if people uh, feel that way as well. Somebody. Thank you. Thank you for speaking up. 
have a lot of we do have issues with down islanders who are considered undocumented. Those are the people from Nevis, St. Kitts, Dominica, St. Lucia, uh, Martin. Those those islands that are using St. Croix, our, our sister island, Puerto Rico, which is only about 15 minutes away as a gate as gateway country. So that 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 in and of itself to me is so funny. But that 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 does exist. And then they come and because the cultures are so different, they ended up they end up getting married. So <laughs> you know, or having babies. And you know, so that's a, so that that that's how that's abated. But you had mentioned and asked before what are some of the things that I use, I use something that I use in my midwifery when I worked here in the United States. It's called center in pregnancy. So I do center in wellness. Because mm -hmm. yesterday they did this piece on the microbiome and yeah. exercise and yes. health and, you know, and yeah. underlying wellness. So my thing is getting mothers to breastfeed mm -hmm. because even though people will breastfeed from Latin America and there because it's part of the culture, because also part of the history was working hard on sugarcane plantations to make rum. They often gave pap water and pablum and all these things mm -hmm. because they had to go work or take care of Massa's baby. So they left there. So I am pushing more exclusive breastfeeding for at least a year and getting us talking about getting back to our traditional foods and not buying it and growing food because all over the island, I mean, when it's mango season, there are a million mangoes spoiling. Now it's avocado, breadfruit, they're just on the floor. Getting back into traditional eating and getting back into just having exercise groups and getting a sense of trust because while people know, everyone knows each other, but there's also that lack of trust so people can begin to talk amongst themselves and develop a, a laws of confidentiality. What stays, using the same principles of centering pregnancy. I've been there now two years and that model has worked well. So it's sort of like from that as it has grown um, peer counseling from other people telling other people some of the things that they've changed in their lives. And you deal with whole families. Now our STD clinic and TB clinic are sort of all in one, so nobody knows whether you're coming there for STD, TB, or HIV. Mm -hmm. So it works well in that sense. Um, but I think that there's still a lot of stigma. And unlike um, most of the people, the new cases I've had have been women 50 or over. I have somebody that came in 73. She came in at 71. S and most have been women. Yeah, so, um, and so good in the interest of time, we're almost done. Um, I think the aging population also presents um, other challenges, so that was a good point to bring up. Um, I also wanted to know, I didn't hear um, anybody talk about, just um, talking a little bit about, um, Jim mentioned it, but just talked about housing and, um, and instability versus homelessness, people living with friend to friend, and how some of you may deal with that issue. Um, I know for my staff there, um, I mean, they've actually gone out and found people um, 
that are not necessarily living at home, but the instability in housing or people who are homeless also brings a different challenge. And I, I don't know, I, I mean, I know it exists everywhere, but I think in the rural communities it's a little bit worse for us because there's not a lot of housing to choose from. And I don't know, and I know, Rita, you're going to get mad at me for putting you on the spot again but this, but um, I just wanted you to speak to some of the challenges in North Carolina. Like, we've had people that need assistance with housing, but we don't have any place that would that would take them. Could you give Rita the mic, please? Sorry. Oh. Hi, everyone. Um, our challenges is what for homeless people um, that we try to find housing for that most of them don't have income and they're living out of a bag and they lose medication because if they're going to spend time in a homeless shelter, that's just for at night. And at daytime, they have to roam until they can go back to um, finding, you know, going back to the shelter. But we have patients that we have put them in apartments where we build up relationships with these um, people that run the apartments that do have income that will house them or that's on the list for Section 8 for so long, uh, that's not on the waiting list that we can get vouchers and stuff for. But um, most of them that's poor that do have such income, that even stand, even stand with friends who would charge them an arm and a leg just for a room. Mm -hmm. And that's the only available housing they can get. And Sometimes it's hard to find housing for them because of the substance abuse or alcoholic abuse that they're using. People don't want to trust them or have them in their home. Um, it's very hard for the rural, rural counties out there for our housing. Anybody else have deal, deal with the instinct? Julia? Because I know you. I want to just population. kind of mention something that's happening to us right now in Durham. Mm -hmm. So Durham's become the the RTPs become the second growest, second fastest growing community in the U.S. And the prices have gotten way out of hand. So anyone who's poor is being pushed progressively more and more out. So when we're talking about housing, even if we're able to get someone a voucher, we cannot get landlords who will agree to take the vouchers. Mm -hmm. So we're having kind of an opposite effect right now in the, you know, Durham is not, it's not a urban setting, but it's right. not it's a true. rural setting That's either. Right. It's kind of mixed mix. It mm -hmm. has a little bit of a, a little bit of both, but mm -hmm. um, the prices are just flying through the roof right now, and it's becoming more and more difficult for our patients as a result. And I think you're right, Julia, with the growth of RTP, which is the Research Triangle Park, which is where the tech, the STEM uh, um, occupations, the STEM work is, if you come right outside of that, it's Durham. So people that work in the tech industry uh, who are moving into Durham is exactly what you're talking about. And that's why I, that, thanks for sharing that too. That's really good. Yeah. Um, yes. Can you get the microphone, sorry. And we just, cause they're taping, they're recording this. So we just wanna make sure we get you. I also have, um, 
a problem with uh, food insecurity. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I actually have um, a patient now who um, he, he won't out and out tell me, but because he went working for a McDonald's, he applied, no, he had food stamps, and then he went to work at McDonald's. Medicaid found out that he was working, so they cut, cut off, off his, his food stamps. stamps. Mm -hmm. And so what he's not telling me is that he's out prostituting to eat. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, he and I sat down. We went through, like, looking for Echo, Echo Ministries, the different food banks, um, our Part B uh, provider. They give out one bag of groceries. However, they're canned goods, they're very salty, mm -hmm. and they're, they're really not good for their overall health. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that kind of drives me crazy is I feel like in some ways our patients, we want them out working, we want them out being independent, but they're being popped on the hand. Right. Right. And or so trying to do that. that safety net goes, well, then why, why am I working? Why am I working, Miss Steeple? I'm like, you're working for independence. Yeah, but I'm starving at night. So, so, you, so that is very important, which is why we have this on here. Um, and we, too, had a situation in North Carolina where in 2013, 2012, 2013, um, the um, food stamps, the money for food stamps for people to get was markedly decreased, and also unemployment, people that lost their jobs was decreased. And we just, we were looking at our data, which is, um, just give me a second, I'm gonna get there. Um, we started looking at a certain number of our patients who had been virally suppressed for a long time that suddenly, um, were non-compliant with their visits, non-compliant with their medications, starting to have detectable viral load. And so what I normally do when I start seeing something that I don't like in our patient population, I go scream to Rita and say, what is going on? Go figure it out. Um, why are we having this issue? And we found that there were people who were hungry, who weren't able to get food, so they couldn't take their medications um, because they weren't able to get food. So what we've done um, is we partnered with a North Carolina Food Bank. We applied to be a recipient of food from North Carolina Food Bank. And we go, um, and so this is something myself and Tyler Parker, who's our outreach coordinator, something we do together. It's our bonding time. We go to the North Carolina Food Bank, and we handpick the food. Um, and we have, we call it the clinic pantry. We go, we handpick food, um, just what you're saying, more nutritional, no junk, no sodas, none of that stuff. Um, and we handpick the food, and we have it in our clinic pantry, which is inspected by North Carolina Food Bank. And we um, get fresh produce, meat. The holiday time, we get turkeys and things like that. And what we do, and I, I don't want this to sound like we're, but we do, we, I'm firm with my patients. I'm the mean mom. Um, we make basically a deal. We will help you with this. And here's, here's what I need you to do. I need you to take your medication. All I'm asking you to do is take your medication, keep your appointments. When you come to your appointment, you get a bag of groceries. Um, we have had, and I'll present this on Friday in our HRSA, um, my HRSA session, we've seen a marked decrease in viral loads in our patients that are recipients, 
and that are that qualified. They have to be less than 200% of FPL, and we have documentation as to what their income is, and that has been a huge, huge, um, a huge savings for our for our clinic. We went we went to them, and um, basically there's an application, ap apply for what we wanted, and then they came to us, inspected our place, and all that. The the way you've described that is you're going out and buying the food, and people have to come to you to get it. In in for us in a broad, uh, vast expanse, uh, it's hard, it would be easier for us to send uh, a food card, but. Our reading of the uh, regulations is that's not legal. So is that, no, do, so do you agree that we can't send a food card to somebody in a, in a rural area and say, even though they're struggling like that? Okay, so, so be careful with that because that's not necessarily true. In Ryan White money, in Part B and Part C, if your Part B has a line item for um, food, for and we do in our state, um, if, if you have a line item for food, for nutrition, they have nutrition, they have a, a, I don't know, technical name that, that our Part B administrators call it, you can provide food with your Ryan White dollars to your patients, but you, you, you're, you have to have that allocated in your budget. No, right, but pr you are providing food, a can yeah. or a fresh we vegetable. We do food vouchers. But we do food carts, too. Do you? To the grocery store. Yeah, we do. There's... There's only one grocery store in Vance County, really, and we get gift cards, food gift cards. Okay, um, so they to have a specific well. food gift card that they can't use. They can't use it anyway. They have to go to Food Lion to use it for food. They can't go to Walmart. Yes, we do the same thing. We can yeah. only go to certain places That's where they right. have a, a restricted gas only card. That's right. Okay. So this is specifically so to can, Food Lion. You can get a food restricted. Mm-hmm. And we do that. So, C so can, our clinic is part C. C can do that yep. too. C can do that too. Right. Yeah. yeah, if you do to a grocery, so if you do to a grocery store like we do to Food Line, and what we also do just on what you're saying, our um, patients have to sign for those cards so we have a record as to who got those cards and where they went. But we, do it, we don't do it to a Walmart or to a store where they can do other shopping. It's specifically to the grocery store. And they, it's specifically to Food Line when we do that. And we do it. Um, they, it's not a problem. I know we're on out of time. Dom Herrera. He says, when I give food to the poor, I'm called a saint. When I ask why the poor has no food, I'm called a communist. So one of the things that I think that we need to do is that we have to deal. These, these are just the, our solutions are band-aid to structural issues mm -hmm. and until we we can talk about all the problems in the superstructure we address the social system which that superstructure serves we just continue to perpetuate the problem and so Sorry, I don't while know what some is. of us our people get what I call food stamps is that have the least fraud in food stamps out of any program no one talks about corporate welfare we have to really begin to educate our patients and our communities about the inequalities that exist so that they can then begin to not look at themselves as, oh, we are the poor, we need this and we need that. They then begin to... Yeah, I will demand. say our patients so don't look at them themselves that way we do. Did you have a comment so to make we a, have something? We have to look at how, what we can do to educate 
Great. I think we've come. Yeah, I think this was very yeah. stimulating. I hope everyone got something from one another that we can take back to our communities and use to, to try to better treatment for our patients. Thank you for coming.